Welcome to State of Health Podcast. This is your host, J-Mart. On this podcast, I will share my knowledge and experience as a personal trainer and health coach and talk about my interests and experiments in physical training, nutrition, and other lifestyle factors involved in health. On this episode of the podcast, I've compiled the best clips from the State of Health podcast in 2021. There were a wide variety of topics covered, such as personal training, nutrition, particularly about saturated fat and risk of cardiovascular disease, emergency resuscitation, Wim Hof breathing, back pain, and finally, vitamin D. Some episodes were recorded solo, while others were interviews with other coaches, clients, and doctors. Please enjoy and best wishes for 2022. Just before we get started, this is a reminder that you can get started with my free bodyweight training program, Body Basics, which requires no equipment by going to subscribepage.com slash bodybasics. Also, if you're watching this on YouTube, don't forget to smash the like button for the YouTube algorithm, hit subscribe if you like the content, and hit the notification bell too. If you're listening through a podcast app, could you please share the podcast with a friend who may also enjoy listening and discussing it with you? All right, here's the episode. I think the biggest thing that people really come to a personal training for is that motivation and accountability that they're able to provide. The knowledge and experience almost has become secondary. From my personal experience, I don't know. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I, I agree. I think, well, I think there's kind of two sides to it. So one, I think that most people come to a trainer for the, the, the accountability, the motivation, the, all of the kind of intangible things that you can't get with just purely reading info online. And then the other side of it is that there's so much information out there. And if you have a base knowledge of zero, you, you'll be, it's very difficult to kind of weed through all of that information and then decide like what's best for you. Like, should I be vegan? Should I be carnivore? Should I, you know, whatever, right? It's total opposites and all of them sound, all of them sound correct. So I think the other thing that people will come to a trainer for mostly is just to cut through all that noise. So my focus as I'm training clients is, is somewhat thinking about very long-term in the sense like what is this going to happen to this person like 10 years from now, 30 years from now. And so, you know, I wouldn't expect any client to stay with me for forever. And I don't think I would really want that either. I would want them to be able to do this on their own at some point. Right. Um, So thinking about how can I teach this person as much as I can about their body, what their body's capable of and how to like fix things and how to adjust things and use this as a tool going forward. So to break that down a little bit smaller, I would say first is like, let's just get this person moving. Well, let's, you know, address any kind of uh, imbalances or injuries to the extent that I can deal with that um and, and get that done and get them moving well and, and feeling confident in their movement once they feel confident in their movement then we can just build on that and build on that and build on that until they're confident to kind of deal with this on their own yeah i feel very similar to you again my focus is to try to teach the client how to reach their goals in a way where they understand what they're doing so that eventually they just don't need me very similar to you like You know, I want to provide them with the tools and then they have the tools with themselves for the rest of their lives. Really, I judged a lot of it based on like how just how my clothes fit. Mm -hmm. Uh, That was like pretty much the biggest tell Mm -hmm. for me. And I got to say, like, John, you asked me to do before and after photos and I was so embarrassed. And I felt so silly and I was like, no, I don't want to do them. I don't want to share them with anybody. But I'm so happy that you actually made me do them because when you actually look at before and after you really do see like the changes that your body went through otherwise you're Mm -hmm. just watching it happen like and you don't notice the changes so 
thank -hmm. you for pushing me for that because otherwise I wouldn't have done it. Yeah, totally. You're welcome. And my next question was going to be, what did you learn? And I guess that would be one of the things is it's really important to have that kind of uh, point in time that's captured forever for you to be able to compare against. Otherwise, it's uh, it's really difficult to know if whether you did something had an effect or not. Yeah, and I have already recommended it to a couple friends. Breathing is very important. Obvious statement, but why? So breathing and heart beating, which are both intimately connected, right? The faster and harder you breathe, the faster your heart beats, the slower and more calmly you breathe, the more slowly and calmly your heart beats as well. And these are constant patterns of movement that occur throughout our entire lives from the moment we're born to when we die. And so conscious breathing is this just this really awesome, powerful way to connect our body to our nervous system. And by optimizing our breathing, we can really have a positive systemic effect on the entire body that is just too hard to achieve with any other single movement pattern. Now, what kind of breathing specifically? The breathing that I like to talk about today is called diaphragmatic breathing. So what is that? So diaphragm is this uh, thin skeletal muscle that sits at the base of our chest and it connects or separates, I guess, the abdomen from the chest. And when it contracts, it like flattens down towards the hips and creates this vacuum effect that pulls air into the lungs. And then when you exhale, the diaphragm relaxes and it kind of pushes back up and pushes the air out of the lungs. So for diaphragmatic breathing, we need the contraction of the diaphragm, the expansion of the belly, we do deep inhalation and exhalation. And so by doing deep breathing, what we do is we result in a decrease in respiratory rate. So kind of the number of breaths you take, let's say per minute decreases. One of the key things about it is it really triggers the body's relaxation responses that can benefit both our physical and mental health. There's no shortage of intervention studies that demonstrate how there's, there could be a significant decrease in negative emotion with the use of, use of breathing exercises. You, know, you can think of it as a non-pharmacological, non-pharmacological uh, emotion enhancement tool that can help reduce anxiety, can help with depression and stress. You know, it's not the only way to deal with these uh, ailments, but it's a very powerful non-pharmacological tool that is uh, very helpful. It's, it's also been shown to help improve sustained attention so you know you can focus on the task you're working on better on a biochemical level it decreases uh, levels of cortisol in the blood and cortisol is a inflammatory hormone that's involved in the fight or flight response it's a very important hormone and we need to have it but uh, we, we don't need large amounts of it when it's unnecessary the top here is the article from the journal of the american college of cardiology that was published mid 2020. So it's a fairly recent article and the title is saturated fats and health, a reassessment and proposal for food-based recommendations. The authors of the article start by saying that since the 1980s, it has been recommended that saturated fatty acid intake be limited to less than 10% of total calories as a means of reducing the risk of cardiovascular disease. So since the 1980s, this is a long time since over 30 years they've been told to reduce saturated fat intake and not only to reduce it, but reduce it quite, quite a lot, less than 10% of total calories. And so what the authors want to, the question that the authors want to answer is what is the relationship between saturated fat consumption, both types and amounts and the risk of cardiovascular disease in adults. 
And, you know, they looked through the evidence and uh, pre presented what their analysis is. So in the beginning, they just kind of give you a little summary. They looked at studies that all summed up together, cover 400,000 people, both in observational studies and randomized controlled trials. And what they found is that no evidence that reduction in saturated fat consumption may reduce cardiovascular disease incidence or mortality. Uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a surprising. <laughs> Why is that? And they, in fact, in addition to that, they find some reports where actually a significant, albeit a mild beneficial effect to increasing saturated fat consumption. So to them, they say the basis for consistently recommending a diet low in saturated fat is unclear. They're, they're questioning where, why is this, why are people uh, saying you should reduce saturated fat intake when, you know, there's no evidence that it reduces cardiovascular disease risk or mortality, and there might even be a beneficial effect. It's very, very unclear. Here we have a kind of a graph where we can see a line that goes straight down the middle pointing to one. So one RR or relative risk indicates that the relative risk of the intervention group would have been the same as the control group, meaning there was no benefit or risk. Okay. And if the RR value is less than one, it means the risk of the intervention group would have been lower than the control group, which would have been beneficial, right? And so here we can see that all these uh, three or eight trials have an RR value below one, all except one, actually. There's one study that has an RR value above one. And surprisingly, this study is actually the study with the largest number of participants. So altogether, all eight studies combined to 13,600 participants, but one study actually makes up over 9,000 of that total. So it's a huge study. And in this one, the RR value or the relative risk is actually above one, meaning that there's potentially a risk involved in this intervention trial, interventional diet where PUFA consumption is significantly increased. All right, so keep that in mind. And the second thing to look at is actually these uh, lines that represent the confidence intervals. So not, we're given what the average uh, relative risk number is, right? But we're also given a 95% confidence interval range within which the true value could be lying. And in all of the studies, seven out of the eight studies, actually, so there's only one study where the confidence intervals do not include the relative risk of one, meaning potentially there could be no improve, improvement in, uh, you know, coronary heart disease event outcome uh, by increasing total uh, PUFA consumption. Uh, so it's very interesting to kind of look at the data this way and see how even though there seems to be some small benefit accruing in, in the intervention group, for all of these, it's not really statistically significant. And for the study with the largest number of participants, there's actually potentially a risk involved too. So when I saw this, it was very surprising. I'm going to do a quick summary of what we've covered so far. The first episode that I covered this, which was two episodes back now, we did a review of an article from 
the Journal of the American College of Cardiologists. So pretty good journal, cardiologists, they know a thing or two about heart health. And in that journal, there was a review of kind of like the literature out there on what is the relationship with saturated fat intake and cardiovascular disease risk. And the outcome of that or review was that those authors demonstrate both with observational and interventional data that saturated fat is not related or associated with higher cardiovascular disease risk. And I think it was a pretty good paper in terms of like uh, the data they looked at and how they presented it. Um, in, in terms of my critique, I, ha I didn't have a lot of negative critique of that paper. However, I did have quite a lot to say about the second one that we covered, which was the previous episode. And in that one, I looked at a meta-analysis, which means it's a scientific article that basically combines data from other research that's been done and tries to see if there's any overarching kind of trends within that. And so they were looking at whether replacing saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat what effect that has on cardiovascular, or this, in this case, they defined coronary heart disease. So that would be basically heart attacks and heart attack related deaths. And what that study says is that when you have a significant increase in polyunsaturated fat, which just uh, to go back a little bit, polyunsaturated fat, most often that when people say that they're referring to vegetable oils or they're they're marketed as vegetable oils but they're really seed oils because they come from things that are seeds such as soybean cotton seed corn all these seed oils are full of omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acid and in this uh, second study i looked at they were increasing the omega-6 PUFA consumption threefold and this was looking at intervention studies now where the subjects were actually like given a, a diet. But that's not actually fully true because some of the studies, the subjects were given the diet. And then in other ones, they were just given a dietary advice. But so they combined this data together and showed a overall 19% relative risk reduction in the intervention group, in the diet intervention group that had more sat, uh, polyunsaturated fats. Now, it was a 19% relative risk, but when you looked at the absolute data, it was only a 2%, 1 to 2%. They didn't actually provide the data, but that's just my kind of uh, uh, calculation that it was only a 1 to 2% absolute risk reduction. And when you actually looked at the data more closely and looked at the all-cause mortality, that was actually the same between both groups. So even though heart attacks, heart attack-related deaths were lower in the intervention group, total deaths were the same. So you have to ask yourself, is the diet intervention really helping if total deaths are the same? My answer is no, it's not. So altogether made me basically disregard the uh, claims that the authors made in that paper, suggesting that replacing, sat replacing saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat from vegetable sources rich in omega-6 fatty acids was beneficial for uh, coronary heart disease outcomes. So now that brings us to today's paper. We're going to look at a very large study that was actually included in uh, the meta-analysis from the previous episode. Uh, it was actually the largest part of the whole thing. So the previous meta-analysis had 
eight studies that altogether uh, summed up to 13,600 participants, if I remember correctly. Over 9,000 of those, I think 9,500, will be from this one study that we'll be looking at, which is known as the Minnesota Coronary Experiment. The data for the study was collected from uh, 60 to 70, uh, late 60s to early 70s, and then the data was just put in a drawer and never looked at because, you know, the results did not fit what the researchers were hoping to find. And then part of the results, not the full set, was published in the late 80s, like uh, nearly 20 years later. And then now, nearly 40 years later, another scientist was able to find the data that was never published before and yeah, do some analysis. And it's funny, if you uh, do a Google search on Minnesota coronary experiment, you'll come across this um, a Washington Post article. Let me go in here. This is the uh, article here that we'll go through, but let's check out this Washington Post article first. So it's quite a sensational title to the article. This study 40 years ago could have reshaped the American diet, but it was never fully published. Da, da, da. <laughs> The long-belated saga of the Minnesota coronary experiment may also make a broader point about how science gets done. It suggests just how difficult it can be for new evidence to see the light of day when it contradicts wildly held theories. So Ramsen and colleagues, this is the gentleman who actually ended up finding some of this old data and reanalyzing it. They discovered the missing data during their research, during their research examining the potentially harmful effects of linoleic acid. I already mentioned this. This is the omega-6 PUFA. They were looking at potential harmful effects of linoleic acid on human health. So, and I already mentioned that this is a key constituent of vegetable oils, which I defined as actually seed oils. So preliminary research suggests a link between linoleic acid and diseases such as chronic pain, Ramsden said, and humans have been consuming it in larger quantities than their bodies may be prepared for. Before the advent of agriculture, humans got 2-3% of their calories from linoleic acid, according to the new paper. Today, however, most Americans, awash in cooking oils and oils added to snack foods, get much more. Exactly, so this is not something that used to be in human diets. This is not something that we've probably evolved to. And now we're increasing uh, consumption of it in drastic amounts. And this is exactly what the study looked at and tried to see what effect this could have on people's health. And the, the results of what the study showed was very against what they were expecting. And this is part of the reason why it was never published. And this is what the author of this Washington Post article says. It's not exactly clear why the full set of data from the Minnesota experiment was never published. The results of the study were never touted by the investigators. Partial results were presented at an American Heart Association conference in 1975. And it wasn't until 89, 1989, 14 years later, that some of the results were published, appearing in a medical journal known as arteriosclerosis. So the principal investigators were Ansel Keys and Ivan France for this study. And Ansel Keys is well known as like the, the father of the diet heart hypothesis and the person who kind of created the American Heart Association that uh, pushed the recommendation of reducing saturated fat and instead taking on polyunsaturated fat. He's a really well-known figure. His image is on the cover of Time magazine, which I used for the thumbnail of this article. But so why was this data only partially published in 89? 
like well over 10 years after the data was collected. Well, this gentleman, Stephen Brosty, who's a biostatistician, he was actually a student at the University of Minnesota and used a full set of data for his master's thesis in 81. That's crazy. So he used the data for his thesis in 81, and that was never published either. And only part of the data was then published eight years later after his thesis. Anyways, part of the problem, Brosty suggesting in an interview, may have been the limits on statistical methods at the time. Computer software for statistics wasn't as readily available as it is today, so at the time of the study, it wasn't as easy to know how significant the data was. Fair enough, he's being charitable to these principal investigators, but like, how long does it take to eventually get computer software to be able to analyze this data? It took them over 10 years to just publish part of the set of data. Why weren't they able to get the computer software to analyze the whole set? Here it says Brosty completed his thesis several years after the last patient had left the trial, but his thesis was not published in a journal. Now here's what uh, this uh, statistician thinks. Brosty also suggested that at least part of the reason for the incomplete publication of the data might have been human nature. The Minnesota investigators had a theory that they believed in that reducing blood cholesterol would make people healthier. Indeed, the data was widespread and would soon be adopted by the federal government in the first dietary recommendations. So when the data they collected from the mental patients conflicted with this theory, the scientists may have been reluctant to believe what their experiments had turned up. Yes, absolutely. They are the ones that put forth this diet heart hypothesis. And then when they went to collect really solid evidence to try to prove it as best they can, they got results that disproved it. So of course, they're not going to be motivated to publish this data. So the traditional diet heart hypothesis, what is it? Well, basically, the hypothesis is that if we introduce a diet that results in a lower level of blood cholesterol, this will lead to less deposition of cholesterol, meaning less plaque on arterial walls, and this will slow down the progression of atherosclerosis, which means that over long periods of time, there will be less heart attacks and less deaths from heart attacks. So what evidence is there to uh, support this claim? Well, it is supported by evidence from randomized control trials showing that replacement of saturated fat with linoleic acid lowers serum total cholesterol and low-density lipoprotein. Right, so we know that from intervention, if we change the diet from high in saturated fat to high in polyunsaturated fat, this will have an effect on total cholesterol levels by bringing them to lower levels, specifically LDL itself. And then we also have some observational evidence linking serum cholesterol to coronary heart disease events and deaths. Right, so observational evidence means that there's an association with levels of blood cholesterol. And so when blood cholesterol is high, we have associations with increased coronary heart disease events and deaths. And when it's lower, it's the other way. But despite these compelling relations, no randomized control trial has shown that replacement of saturated fat with linoleic acid, which is an omega-6 polyunsaturated fatty acid, or PUFA, I'll refer to it as PUFA for short, significantly reduces coronary heart disease events or deaths. Right, so there's never been any actual interventional data that shows that diet will actually reduce heart attacks and heart attack-related deaths when you change it towards increased polyunsaturated fats. So the first question we want to answer is, did the experiment intervention lower serum or blood cholesterol? 
And the answer to this should be yes, as predicted by the diet hypothesis. So as predicted, the participants in the intervention group significantly lowered serum cholesterol compared to the control group and to the baseline. It was an, on average a 14% decrease in blood cholesterol levels. Now, did the decrease in blood cholesterol levels result in reduced risk of death? Well, the data they used to answer this question is from this thesis from Mr. Brosty, who we talked about previously. And in his thesis, he has these life table graphs, which confirmed that there was actually no mortality benefit in the full cohort. And more importantly, the life table for the cohort of people aged over 65 suggests that there was a possibility of an increased risk of death for the intervention group compared with the control. Yeah, so this runs counter to the diet heart hypothesis. The first part was true, and we already have previous data to support this, that when you change the diet for, more uh, for less saturated fat and more polyunsaturated fat in the diet, you will see a decrease in the blood cholesterol levels. But the second part is the more important part, of course. Does this actually reduce risk of death? And according to these life table graphs, from this gentleman's thesis, they do not. In fact, the age group over the age of 65 uh, is at higher risk. Now, we do have to be careful because this data was taken from the thesis and the raw data was not available. So in the absence of raw data, the uh, authors do say that we cannot determine the statistical significance of this finding. However, we do know that the survival analysis was presented in the 1989 manuscript, which was published, which also showed no mortality benefit for the full population. So the question is, was the change in serum or blood cholesterol related to risk of death? And according to the authors of this paper, they say that the experiment participants with the greater reduction in blood cholesterol had a higher rather than a lower risk of death. Again, this runs counter to the diet heart hypothesis in that when we lower blood cholesterol levels, in theory, we should see a slowdown of uh, plaque deposition, less atherosclerosis, meaning less death. But in fact, we see that people in this diet intervention study that had the greatest reduction in blood cholesterol levels had the highest risk of death. So here in this image here, you see just the bloodstream surrounded by cells right? And the cells are saying, I'm, I'm hungry, right? So they need chemical energy in the body, which is provided through the bloodstream. And what usually gets provided to those cells is glucose and triglycerides. Here, now we can see glucose going through the bloodstream and the cells on the surface of the arteries will have receptors represented by hands here that can catch the glucose and then use that energy. But what about the triglycerides? Well, what are triglycerides? They are a fat molecule or three fat molecules attached together by a glycerol uh, particle, which is kind of related to glucose. It's a byproduct of glucose degradation. But so glucose here, it says is hydrophilic, which means water loving. And since the bloodstream is made up of mostly water, it can just easily go into the bloodstream and be uh, there 
without too much trouble. But triglycerides are hydrophobic, phobia meaning afraid of, right? So they cannot simply spend a lot of time in the bloodstream. So they need kind of like a packaging molecule that will carry it through the bloodstream from place to place that it needs to go. This carrying molecule is called a lipoprotein. Now this lipoprotein, think of it like a carrying molecule or a boat, which is made up of fat molecules and a combination of fat molecules and proteins can carry the triglycerides, the glycerol and the three fatty acid molecules all attached. It also carries cholesterol and some fat soluble vitamins. And so there are many different types of lipoproteins with different functions. And the two that people are most familiar with are the low density lipoprotein or LDL and high density lipoprotein or HDL. And people mostly refer to the fact that these, the, the amount of cholesterol that these lipoproteins are carrying. But keep in mind, they also carry triglycerides, cholesterol, fat-soluble molecules, and they have different important functions of carrying this cargo to different parts of the body. So for LDL cholesterol, it is responsible for bringing this cargo to the cells in the surface of the blood vessel and providing those to those cells. And because of that, if the provision of cholesterol goes, uh, uh, goes wrong, you could say, and there's cholesterol deposition on the surface of the uh, artery, then you can have plaque buildup, narrowing of the wall of the artery, that, which can lead to like chest pain and heart attack, right? But it's still an important function to provide cholesterol to those cells, whether it gets executed properly or not. So it's still an important function that LDL lipoprotein, low-density lipoprotein is providing. It also has another function related to immunity, which I won't get into because that's too tangential. But it's definitely been shown that high levels of LDL, low-density lipoprotein, can be protective with regards to pathogens. And so it's kind of wrong for it to be termed the bad cholesterol because it has important functions in the body that it needs to play. But then we also have HDL cholesterol or HDL high density lipoprotein, which also carries cholesterol and uh, triglycerides, but it has a different function because what it does is it collects cholesterol from different parts of the body and then it can bring it to the liver or to uh, the uh, adrenal glands where the cholesterol can be used to produce important hormones that are, you know, needed for proper function of the body in order to keep it healthy. So both have very important functions, but HDL is seen as the good cholesterol because it collects, or the good, yeah, uh, lipoprotein because it collects the cholesterol from around the body and brings it to a centralized place, whereas LDL kind of does the reverse of that, even though both functions are important. Let's start with an axiom that everyone can agree with. Coronary heart disease is a dreadful disease that we should try to avoid. So what are the risk factors for coronary heart disease so we can avoid it? Well, it's those four mentioned in the beginning of the podcast. High LDL cholesterol levels, high blood pressure, physical inactivity, and smoking. When I hear those risk factors, I think to myself, what are the low-hanging fruit in terms of lifestyle changes I can make that will have an impact and reduce those risk factors? The easy and obvious answer for me is to increase physical activity. Increased activity obviously takes care of inactivity, but also being more physically active disincentivizes smoking and it can help reduce blood pressure. Physical activity won't have an impact on LDL cholesterol levels, but it does reduce triglycerides and increases HDL cholesterol. 
Well, that's great because we just read a whole paper about how low triglycerides and high HDL cholesterol are associated with a significantly reduced risk of coronary heart disease. We also learned that the opposite lipid profile of high triglycerides and low HDL cholesterol is the characteristic lipid profile of someone with metabolic syndrome and is the strongest risk factor for coronary heart disease, even stronger than high LDL cholesterol, the traditional heart disease risk factor. Remember, the major finding from the study was that people with high LDL cholesterol, which in theory should be high risk, who also had low triglycerides and high HDL cholesterol levels, had a significantly reduced risk of coronary heart disease than those with high triglycerides and low HDL cholesterol, but low LDL cholesterol, which should be low risk in theory. Furthermore, the people with high LDL cholesterol, even when compared to the low LDL cholesterol group with similar lipid markers of low triglycerides and high HDL cholesterol, were at no greater risk of coronary heart disease, which really goes to show that LDL cholesterol alone is not a good predictor of risk of heart disease. Therefore, if you get a lipid panel that says you have high LDL cholesterol, that doesn't mean you're going to develop atherosclerosis and get a heart attack tomorrow. It also doesn't mean you should avoid saturated fat, which increases LDL cholesterol levels. In my opinion, changing diet by replacing dairy or animal fat full of saturated fatty acids with processed seed oils composed of polyunsaturated fatty acids is not a sound dietary decision. As I've summarized throughout the previous three podcast episodes, replacing saturated fat with polyunsaturated fat lowers LDL cholesterol, but clinical outcomes are unchanged and even worsened for people over the age of 65, as demonstrated by the Minnesota coronary experiment. We can also look at human history and note that for most of our species history, the human diet has been composed of whole or minimally processed foods in which very little polyunsaturated fat from seeds is present. This was until the industrial revolution of late 1800s and early 1900s when we got the creation of industrial seed oils, these highly processed oils that get extracted from soybeans, corn, rapeseed, which is the source of canola oil, cotton seed, and safflower seeds. In the last hundred years, consumption of these seed oils and their polyunsaturated fatty acids has increased dramatically worldwide, with as high as a three times increase in the US specifically. This is vastly greater than what our bodies would have adapted to over the hundreds of thousands of years of evolution when polyunsaturated fat from these seeds wasn't so easily available. Now the amazing thing about the human body is its capacity to adapt to different stress and stimuli. However, we're talking about large quantities of seed oil consumption over the last hundred years against hundreds of thousands if not millions of years of human evolution where polyunsaturated fat consumption from seeds made up only 2-3% to of total calories. That's less than half of what it is now. In my opinion, that's too great of an increase for human metabolism to be able to adapt and still function optimally. With evolution, there are always trade-offs. Something else must suffer to allow for the capacity for that increase. That and the highly questionable production process of seed oils is why I don't recommend to my friends and family and my clients to consume seed oils like soybean oil or even packaged foods that use seed oils in their ingredients list. I personally mostly eat dairy fat like butter and cream or animal fat like tallow, lard, and duck fat. I also use olive oil but significantly less than the other sources of fat. With that significant amount of saturated fat consumption, you would expect to see that I have high levels of LDL cholesterol. And in fact, I do. 
In September of 2019, I was randomly selected by Statistics Canada to enroll in the Canadian Health Measures Survey, which included a blood panel that tested my lipids. Both my LDL cholesterol and total cholesterol levels were slightly higher than the reference range quoted by Statistics Canada in the report they gave me. However, I have very low levels of triglycerides and very high levels of HDL cholesterol, which we saw from the study is associated with low risk of heart disease regardless of LDL cholesterol levels. Moreover, my total cholesterol to HDL cholesterol ratio is very low, which is also associated with low risk of heart disease. Ultimately, I'm not personally worried about high levels of LDL cholesterol. A really good way to think about LDL cholesterol and risk of heart disease, which I got from someone else, is to understand that LDL cholesterol is necessary for heart disease to occur, but alone it is not sufficient to create it. This is similar to how oxygen and fire interact. We know you need oxygen to start a fire, but oxygen is all around us, yet things aren't going up in flames all the time because oxygen is necessary but alone not sufficient to start a fire. So even though I have high LDL cholesterol, I am not a smoker, I don't have high blood pressure, and I'm not inactive, so eating a species-appropriate diet of animal fat that results in a little increase in LDL cholesterol is the least of my worries regarding health. Yeah, and you, like you said, people don't often come back, and when you look at the statistics, 10 to 15% of the time the heart can be restarted, but even half of those patients who survive will have some sort of brain damage. Is that kind of the stats yeah. that you know as well and have seen kind of in practice? Yeah, so I mean, the stats can vary a lot depending on your situation. There's, so there are a few modifiers. One is how quickly do you get to someone after they've had a cardiac arrest, okay? Um, so if someone died in their sleep or something and they didn't have a DNR in order and a family member wakes up and says, oh my God, this person's not breathing and we have no idea how long they've not been breathing, that person's not coming back. Mm -hmm. um, it's very, very unlikely, right? right. But um, and I, I remember as a bystander once, like completely not as a medical professional, um, someone was crossing the street and just collapsed. And I, you know, immediately started doing CPR on this person. Mm -hmm. And so did like a fireman who happened to be a passerby. Mm -hmm. You know, maybe this person had a chance, right? Because mm -hmm. the, the timing. Yeah. It was perfect. Um, I remember even the nurse had like a mouth to mouth uh, yeah. thing. Yeah. I don't know what it's called. That yeah, they have object. one of these valves that you right. can kind of put and she just happened to have it. I, or I'm not sure if she got it from a store nearby or something. I think she always said she, said she always carries one because she's a nurse and she's just seen this happen so often. That, right. Yeah. God. <laughs> to think that you see this happen so often. But um, so there's a difference between, you know, the amount of time that you spent down. Mm -hmm. There is a difference in also, you know, what what kind of patient you're starting with, right? So, you know, an old 87-year-old person who we know has a bad heart, has had previous heart attacks, strokes, what have you, is very different than a 40-year-old who just has, you know, now a newly discovered, like, an electrical disturbance in their heart. And, mm -hmm. you know, you might need to give someone one shock and they're perfect and they wake up right away they don't mm -hmm. even need to go to the icu they walk out of there wow but you know the 87 year old is you know it, the chances are just very different so all comers um i would say probably less than 10 percent after a cardiac arrest would survive to discharge it's probably most of the papers that i've seen but within that there's incredible variability 
to mm-hmm. having you know a far less than one percent chance of survival, mm-hmm. and we know that as you're mm-hmm. rolling in the door, mm-hmm. to you know maybe like thirty percent chance mm-hmm. of survival and actually living a full life afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. So it's very context dependent. If you're a young person and uh, you have not very many medical conditions to worry about, this is likely uh, you want to receive these chest compressions and anything the doctors can kind of throw at you to save you. Yeah, and to be clear, like chest compressions, we said are one of the things, you know, the the shocking machine where we deliver like the high dose of electricity to kind of try and jolt your heart back Mm -hmm. into a normal rhythm is another thing. And then the breathing machines are an adjunct that we generally require as well. Is there ever a time where a patient would not want to receive resuscitation? What are some of the things they need to take into consideration to be able to fully answer that for themselves? So in order to decide whether or not you would want resuscitation or whether or not you would want to be a do not resuscitate patient, mm-hmm. um, I mean, it's a very personal decision. And I think for a lot of people, it depends on values. Sometimes religion comes into it for some people. And so you have to kind of marry your personal outlook about, um, you know, what what you would want in general, but with an understanding of medically what that means. So, um, you know, in order to resuscitate someone, like I said, to paint you a picture, we tend to, you know, do a lot of chest compressions. It's very rough. We often break ribs. This might take like a half an hour to get a patient settled if we're getting a pulse back in the emergency department. But then I'm handing them off to the ICU. And if they survive the ICU, they're spending um, usually weeks in it, in, in the hospital system. And, you know, for the amount of time that the heart is not beating, that's all brain damage and organ damage. Right. Um, and so you just have to think about, okay, well, if you're a young, healthy person, maybe you can run that gauntlet and maybe you can have a meaningful life afterwards. But realistically, even a young and healthy person may have brain damage, may have sort of changes to their personality, changes to what they can do after a long hospital stay like that. And after this happens to an elderly person, like the minute you add um, some disease conditions to the mix, um, make them less healthy, running that gauntlet becomes much, much more difficult. And the function that you have after you leave hospital is almost certainly going to be much less than what you came in with. Mm-hmm. And so you have to ask yourself, okay, this, you know, the the idea of doing the CPR, which may cause some suffering, you know, it's hard to know what the patient experiences. And then the ICU stay afterwards, which most almost certainly causes some suffering and is mm-hmm. hard. Mm-hmm. And the life that you might have afterwards, mm-hmm. um, you know, is that something that you would want? Mm-hmm. You know, people don't often think of that. It's like, mm-hmm. would you would you want to survive with really significant brain damage or be someone who's you know, no longer able to walk or to speak or mm-hmm. to feed themselves or toilet themselves, someone who mm-hmm. would need total care. Because mm-hmm. that, that's on the table for a lot of people mm-hmm. who survive um, mm-hmm. these cardiac arrests. Mm-hmm. And so if you're going to be someone like that, y- you know, you might want a DNR, right? Right. Yeah. Right. So you really have to take into consideration what your baseline level of function is and uh, at least hedge that uh, the function that you come out with is going to be significantly less and for you have to be okay with is. that. Yeah, for most people it is, and you have to decide, is that is that worth it to me? Because mm-hmm. some people will say, any life whatsoever is worth saving. And some people say, well, you know, let me die peacefully. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's there is a, a personal component to that decision-making, certainly. But, 
you know, I try and give people when they come in an idea of what life could look like after, um, you know, they've made a decision about resuscitation if they need it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Now, if somebody does decide they want to get a DNR or at least whatever, fill out a form for it, at least tell someone close who might be, you know, in charge of their health about it, it doesn't mean that they're just going to stop receiving healthcare, right? You still, <laughs> it just it simply means there's certain elements of healthcare that you're opting out of. Can you go in that, into that? Correct. So I think you're, you're bringing up, yeah, a very, very good point that there are different levels of care that someone can receive, right? So, you know, at the very, very, very end of life, um, you know, we can start at the bare bones where we're just making somebody comfortable, okay? Like we give morphine and sedatives as required. Mm-hmm. Um, and we wouldn't do anything else. You know, treating infections as they come, we wouldn't, we wouldn't do that, okay? So that would be suitable for someone who, you know, we expect to die any day from their cancer or, well, I mean, that's one good example. Right. And then, but then you can add levels to this, right? Mm-hmm. And um, you can add what we call, in Ontario at least, we call it, you know, active medical management, where, you know, if someone has an, like an acute medical concern that brought them to hospital, like they have a new pneumonia or they have a new urinary tract infection, which is a very serious thing for elderly people, you know, we give them medicines and antibiotics and fluids and we are trying to save their life. But, yeah, um, but if they get so bad that their heart stops, mm-hmm. um, you know, then we wouldn't try and bring them back. Okay. And we can talk to them about, you know, various things that they would want because you can kind of separate, well, if someone has a breathing problem, okay, would you want breathing assistance? Mm -hmm. Um, Because sometimes you can, you can do that alone. Mm -hmm. Um, And then, but if they're, you know, and some people would say, okay, yes, some breathing assistance is fine with me, but if my heart were to actually stop, don't do the CPR. Mm And, you know, you can kind of tear apart some of that minutia. And then at the very highest level of care, of course, it's, you know, it's CPR, it's breathing machines, it's very, very strong medicines that artificially make your blood pressure mm-hmm. such that you'll perfuse your organs. Um, and you, so those are like the three kind of tiers, right? Comfort measures, active medical management, and and resuscitation should you die. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Great. Thank you for explaining that a little further. Uh, I think that's a lot clearer for everyone. So the nervous system can be broken down into two major parts, the peripheral and the central nervous system. So the central nervous system is, of course, the brain and the spinal cord. And the peripheral nervous system is all the nerves that stem from the spinal cord and extend to our limbs, to the ends of our body, to our skin and fingertip and so on. Now, the peripheral nervous system can be further subdivided into the somatic and the autonomic. The somatic, you can think of it, is all the things that help control external actions such as our muscles. So anytime you're reaching for any sort of object in life or you're moving or anything like that, all those actions are controlled by the somatic nervous system. The autonomic nervous system, those are the nerves that control all the internal activities of our body, all the things that are going on in the organs and glands. So that's called autonomic nervous system because, as you can imagine, very, it's very unlikely for you to be consciously be in control of those things. Those are automatically under control, so that's the autonomic nervous system. And then we can further subdivide the autonomic nervous system into two 
categories, the sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic nervous system. Uh, these are commonly thought of as the fight and flight response, the sympathetic nervous system, fight and flight, and the rest and digest, the calming one, which is the parasympathetic nervous system. So let's go back to the title. And here we see, even though I just said the sympathetic nervous system is part of the autonomic nervous system, which is not usually under voluntary control, the title of this article says voluntary activation of the sympathetic nervous system. So that's already very interesting, something very new, something very different from what we already currently know. So it's saying that there is possibly a way to voluntarily activate the sympathetic nervous system and that possibly this is associated with the attenuation, which is another word for decrease of the innate immune response. So what is the innate immune response? So we can think of immunity belonging into two categories. There's innate immunity and there's adaptive immunity. Uh, the major differences between these two things are that in innate immunity, we have uh, white blood cell types such as dendritic cells, neutrophils, macrophages, and natural killer cells. And these cell types kind of move all around the body and they have the ability to either release these things called cytokines, which are depicted by these yellow dots in this image, or they also have the ability to phagocytose, which means kind of like eat any like uh, pathogens. So they can basically consume, engulf something that doesn't, shouldn't belong in your body. And then by engulfing it, then they can proceed with its destruction. So that would be the innate immunity. And then the adaptive immunity, there's also white blood cells involved, but they're different types. There's mainly B cells and T cells. And B cells are well known because they release uh, high affinity antibodies towards pathogens. And then uh, the T cells can help with that uh, aspect of B, uh, B cell proliferation. And they, they also release uh, cytokines as well. And then the other major difference between these two is that innate immunity is not specific towards any pathogen. And it acts very quickly early on, whereas adaptive immunity is very specific towards a pathogen that it is able to bind, such as the antibodies. And this happens a little bit later. Uh, the response time is uh, days, not hours, like the innate immunity. So again, let's go back to the title of the article. Now we're talking about attenuation of the innate immune response. So why would we want to reduce the innate immune response if uh, we want to be able to fight uh, an infection? The authors begin by stating that the innate immune system is crucial to our survival, but excessive or persistent pro-inflammatory cytokine production can result in tissue damage and organ injury, such as an autoimmune disease. So there you go. That gives you some idea as to why potentially having an attenuated or decreased innate immune response might be a beneficial thing. We don't want excessive or persistent pro-inflammatory responses by our immune system. So the authors established that the sympathetic nervous system, when it is modulated by giving somebody these catecholamines, these uh, epinephrine, norepinephrine, or uh, dopamine, we can have a, an effect on the immune response. What the authors are claiming is from a case study, they were able to show that Wim Hof is able to voluntarily impact his sympathetic nervous system by endogenously, make, meaning inside his body, he's able to release these catecholamines, this epinephrine, and that results in reduced inflammatory response. Now, they say that, that they tested this via experimental endotoxemia. So what is that? So here you can think of this as the cell of a bacteria such as E. coli. And these E. coli have these substances they make up that make up its cell wall, 
which are called endotoxin. So endotoxins are the lipid portions of lipopolysaccharides that are part of the outer membrane of the cell wall of gram-negative bacteria. E. coli fall into this category. The endotoxins are liberated when the bacteria die and the cell wall breaks apart. So how could endotoxin cause an immune response in a human individual? Here is a proposed mechanism. So here you have a macrophage, which is a white blood cell type that can phagocytose or eat this bacterium, which has endotoxin in its um, cell wall. And then as the macrophage ingests and starts breaking down the bacterial cell wall, the endotoxin or the lipopolysaccharide will be released and induce this macrophage to release what are called cytokines. And then these cytokines then can be released into the bloodstream and go and they can travel all the way to the hypothalamus. And the hypothalamus is this temperature control center of the brain. And in there, the cytokines can induce the hypothalamus to produce these things called prostaglandins, which will then reset the body's thermostat to a higher temperature and cause fever. So what they're saying in this introduction is that Compared to normal people, when you expose Wim Hof to this endotoxin, he's able to voluntarily increase his catecholamine release in his body to deal with that innate immune response and not have the same fever-like symptoms that people normally get. So in this study, we, the authors, they say, investigated the effects of his training program. So the training program of meditation, exposure to cold, and the breathing techniques, on sympathetic nervous system parameters and the innate immune response in healthy male volunteers during experimental endotoxemia in a randomized controlled fashion. So yeah, like I said, if you talk to him and ask him whether he's special or whether anyone can do the things he does, he will say that anyone can do them and he's able to train them. And that's exactly what they did. He trained uh, the people who were volunteers of this study to see if they would have the same increase in the sympathetic nervous system activity and a reduction in the innate immune response. Maybe you can give my, a brief summary of your back pain story. Sure. My training background through my whole life, like I played basketball, I did track, I was I did jumping sports, like stuff like that. And then when I was in college, I started doing CrossFit. Um, and I didn't really know. Yeah, I just basically watched the videos on the internet and then tried to imitate it the best that I could. I didn't really know anything about like the methodology of training. I was, I was in business school at the time. I wasn't studying this stuff formally. You know, I didn't have the experience that I have now. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was just crushing workouts, like as hard as I could. I wanted to make myself vomit, you know, like I was so in that world. Like I wanted to make my, I like tried to make myself pass out by working out so hard. Like that was like, I was like 20 and I was like, you know, if I don't pass out, I didn't push hard enough, you know, that type of, you know, mentality, no pain, which is no gain. Yeah. All that very misguided, you know? <laughs> um, and so, you know, I wasn't thinking about the volume of my training or like the technique as much. Um, mm -hmm. and I, you know, I created a lot of my own injuries. And uh, one of those was, you know, as we're talking about right now, obviously my lower back. And I think it was a, a combination of trying to literally push myself to the limits constantly, as well as suddenly I was sitting in class like 10 hours a day 
probably sitting in the worst positions possible. You know, not that I think like there's a bad position to put a joint in, but I think there's a bad position to put a joint in a lot. Extend a period so, of time. Um, yeah, I mean, you can bend your back in all sorts of positions, right? But if you do that for 10 hours a day and then you're lifting too much. And then the other thing was getting my back manipulated in mm. chiropractic school. And manipulation is a technical term for the what people think of as a chiropractic adjustment. Basically, mm-hmm. a manipulation is a quick stretching of a joint, which often makes a cracking sound because of the mm-hmm. the fluid tension inside the okay. joint. So we're practicing that on each other all the time. Bam, 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 bam. Mm-hmm. And no joint should have that kind of exposure to that level of stretching and mm-hmm. stress. So I was sitting, I was doing workouts just as hard as I could. And I was getting my joints like, stretched out forcefully by people who were in training. And I, I would tweak it here. It was, it was tight for a couple of weeks. I'd tweak it. I would tweak it. I wasn't changing my workouts. I was just being told I was totally lost in what I was, my approach. And it took like three, four years to oh, get wow. fully better. Yeah. And I tried, you know, tried soft tissue work, exercises, da, 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 da. I never got any imaging. I never got x-rays. I didn't want to know mm-hmm. because there's a lot of research that shows that people who get an MRI and they see a disc herniation, even though you know tons of people have a disc herniation with no pain, then when your back hurts, you're like, ooh, it's that disc herniation flaring up. And then you start associating it with... Mm-hmm. So, kind of, so I didn't want to know. Sure, sure. That makes sense to me. And um, yeah, what really changed it for me was reading Dr. McGill, Stuart McGill's book, uh, I think that specific one I read was called low back disorders. And I literally had to read it like standing, like I was standing. This is while I was treating patients in school. I was like in the back room between my patients, like walking around because I couldn't sit for more than five minutes without it hurting, which is common for a disc problem. Like it hurts Mm -hmm. within five minutes of sitting. It's pretty kind of classically described that way. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I, I like stopped bending my back. Like I stopped flexing my lumbar spine, uh, very intentionally for like months mm-hmm. and so, it made it, it got, it got it better. It, it definitely was the thing that helped me make mm-hmm. progress to getting better. Mm-hmm. Um, but I overdid that yeah, and then yeah. I lost my ability to flex the spine. So it's like, you have to temp, sometimes you have to temporarily, like the lesson I learned from that is like, I had to, and I had to have a lot of faith that I was doing the right thing. Yeah. Because it, you know, when you're dealing with a muscle and you, maybe you have a strain of the muscle. Okay. It has tons of blood supply. So it heals super fast, relatively speaking, four to six weeks. If anybody who's strained a muscle, you know, it gets better pretty quick. If you tear it completely, obviously it takes longer, mm-hmm. but a disc, which is, or ligaments, which is what I f- think again, mm-hmm. speculative. Cause I didn't get any, you know, Mm-hmm. sort of like definitive diagnostic on the exact tissue, if that's even possible. Mm-hmm. Um, but those tissues don't have the blood supply that a muscle has, so they just can't heal as fast. And so if you're thinking that you're going to get results in four to six weeks, uh, you're fooling yourself Yeah, it's not because that's not how it's going to work. It's going to take longer. And so then you have to trust that you're doing the right thing without seeing the results. So I really learned how to trust something without seeing the results, which is like a major life lesson for me. Wow. That is, um, that is huge. Yeah. And I would like, like dropping a sock on the, or like dropping something on the ground was like a monumental task. Mm-hmm. Cause then it was like, you can't just bend over and pick it up. 
<laughs> I had like a very specific way of lunging down and bending. It was terrible, man. It was like, it was very hard emotionally, psychologically, energetically. Yeah. You don't know what you got till it's gone, right? It made me, yeah, it really made me appreciate it. But so then what happened though is like, so I was so diligent about not flexing my spine. I became, and this is pretty common actually, uh, I became extension intolerant. Mm-hmm. So it hurt to bend my spine backwards. Wow. And my, and my thinking of, for that is because, uh, because I wasn't bending forwards, I was spending all my time loading on my facet joints. And then those essentially get like sensitive because you're load anything you, anything you load too much will become sensitive because the body, you know, it's like you, if you move a lot, you're constantly changing which tissues or whatever are under load. Right. Um, and so, so then I became extension intolerant. So there was a period of like, I don't know, a year where I was flexion and extension intolerant simultaneously. So like, I basically just couldn't move my spine. And by the way, during this time I was like flying around the world, teaching people about movement. So it was like, there was this irony that was very hard for me. My God. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It's like flying, getting off the airplane being like, Ooh, I'm about to teach people about movement. Who am I to teach people about movement? My back hurts all the time but I know I'm doing the right thing. And mm. I know I didn't know when I got hurt. It's like, there was some of that psychological stuff of like, I had to overcome. Yeah. yeah. And you know what? I was right. After, like after everything I was right, because now my back feels great. I don't have any back pain at all. And I'm recovering my lumbar flexion more now than ever. I started doing yoga like a year ago. I asked Dr. McGillis, cause I had him on my podcast. I was like, do you think most people just are thinking on the wrong time frame mm-hmm. when it comes to low back stuff. Um, you know, cause you have to do the right thing for long enough. And so I think what happened and he said, you know, he, he, he agreed that, that he thinks that that happens. It's like you do the right things for six weeks, but it's a, it's a process that takes six months. So you give up and then you try something else. And then, mm-hmm. so you're, you're, you're like missing it. Mm-hmm. You're missing it due to the time, due to the time scale. Yeah. Um, but, and I, and I think that most people are like, you know, unfortunately, I think most clinicians are very, you know, like they're limited by insurance and by people, the patient Mm. wanting results in two months. And it's like, look, I mean, I had, I've had a lot of patients where I was like, this will get better, but I I honestly think it's going to take a year. Now I'm not going to see you twice a week for a year. Let's not kid ourselves. It's going to do nothing for you because how can I speed up the tissue healing time? Mm -hmm. You need to learn what to do and then do it for a long time. We'll check in. Mm-hmm. You know, but I don't think that approach is taken very much. I, unfortunately, yeah, it's it's tough to have that long term, multi year approach. You know, of like coming to the realization that there are no quick fixes, no one magical yeah. single exercise or one magical single stretch <laughs> that's going to make all the pain go away. That's just I think like principles of of rehab and strength training are the most important thing to understand. Now, what would you say though? Like, it, of course, it's easy to say, take the long-term approach, but then you have people who have jobs where they're like living is dependent on, you know, having a hard manual labor job where they have to kind of load their back in some way to earn a living. Is it just a matter of uh, finding a way to take time off and having a different source of income or what, Mm. what can you do for those people? Yeah. I mean, I definitely saw that also like certain people is like the demand, like they're climbing up trees and cutting branches and it's like, (laughs) they have hip pain. Like 
I think that's one of those, that's part of the art of being a, somebody who works with people in pain mm-hmm. is really understanding what somebody's doing in their job. Mm-hmm. And then using your understanding of the human body as best you can to find solutions to that. Mm-hmm. I, so one, one good example is this guy who he had back pain and he was a plumber. So, I mean, what would you, what do you, I don't mean to put you on the spot here, but that's fine. someone says I'm a plumber. My back hurts. Like, what are your initial thoughts with that? I'm curious. I'm a plumber. I'm back hurts. That's probably because you're bending over a whole bunch throughout the day. Exactly. Today. <laughs> that's what I thought, but he was a commercial plumber uh-huh. and commercial plumbers. As I learned, because I asked him, they work in the ceiling on a ladder. Uh they work on the floor below, at least this guy, uh-huh. he worked on the floor below on a ladder overhead. So he was bending backwards too much. Uh-huh. You see that? It's like, yeah, this is part of like, I made the same assumption out. And then he told me that I was like, Oh God, how mm-hmm. important is it to be like, wait, wait, wait. Mm-hmm. So tell me what positions you're in mm-hmm. when you're at work. So I understand. And he was like, well, I'm always overhead. I was like, you're a plumber. What are you talking about? You're overhead. You know? <laughs> so imagine if I just made that assumption and I was like, yeah. okay, well, you have to, you need to like do these back bends and not, no, he needed to flex more. He needed to like strengthen his abs and learn how to, you know, stabilize his lumbars and bend through his hips or through his thoracic spine and distribute those uh, joint ranges through other segments to, you know, not have a higher stressed area. So part of of the job of being a healthcare provider is kind of being like a detective and figuring out what this person's doing. It's the ultimate problem solving. And that's why you can't memorize stuff with the human body. People try to memorize. No, you need to understand it. You need to understand how it works. You need to understand Mm how physics Mm -hmm. and the emotional components, the psychological components, the physical components. Yeah, I guess part of that is also just like managing their expectations throughout the whole process, right? Even from day one, when someone comes to you and is looking yeah. for some, uh, you know, advice or a consultation or whatever, you have to right away manage their expectations, give them this timeline that you're thinking of. And then on top of that, find out, are there any like red flags going on with them kind of mentally? Because you said, right, the biopsychosocial model, that psychosocial component is very important. Like sometimes people have this idea in their mind where, all back pain is harmful and disabling and more pain equals more tissue damage. So I better not move. Or another thing is like, yeah, Yeah. it's like they might be just like isolated, not around people. And that's going to contribute to back pain too. I'm sure just like having a belief that like nothing's going to help or like only like some passive treatments of somebody else working on me rather than me actively like paying attention to this and doing some whatever it is that you have to actively do. It's just having all these mental kind of roadblocks you have to, in addition to setting the timeline, get rid of those as well. Yeah. Because, you know, somebody who's not social, for example, it's like they, maybe their pain is the same, but they suffer more, mm-hmm. you know, like, and because they don't have social interaction, they're a little bit more dep- depressed. So then their morale is down and then now they're thinking negative thoughts all the time. It's yeah. like, that's a huge component to it. Um, yeah, you have to take all these things into consideration. That's, I mean, that's the art of it and the science, like the science and the art, you have to really understand these things. And I mean, you have to sort of be the light for people. <laughs> like you have to be a source of energy for people. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. 
because people come to you with, you know, people are coming to you with pain and problems and you have to be able to uplift. That's part of the job is uplifting people. Yeah. And you got to strip it down and start from the base, right? Like get rid of all the weight almost like, right. Unload everything. And and just start from the most basic movements. Like what can you do where the pain is not like 10 out of 10 (laughs) and and go from, yeah, you know, it's easy to get sort of pushed into a corner, right? Like suddenly you have, you have less and less and less options of doing things. And so it's important working with somebody is instead of, instead of like, just like, you have to be realistic. There are certain things that probably are not going to be good for that person, Mm -hmm. but there are other things. And this is, that's why I feel like most people go wrong. It's like, tell people what they can't do. Well, Mm. you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't do this. Don't do this. Avoid this. Mm. What about telling people all the things they can do? Because I guarantee you there's more things they can do than things they can't do. Let's start with the what question. What is vitamin D? Vitamin D is a nutrient and a fat-soluble steroid hormone. Let's break that down. What does nutrient mean? A nutrient is a substance that is used by an organism to consume and to use it to survive, to grow and reproduce. So we've got many nutrients. We often think of the macronutrients and the micronutrients. So we have carbohydrates, protein, fat. We've got vitamins, minerals, and water, of course. So that's the definition of a nutrient. Vitamin D fits into that category. It is also a fat-soluble hormone. A hormone is a signaling molecule that is transported to distant organs to regulate physiology and behavior. For vitamin D in particular, it gets produced in the skin, and then it is released through the bloodstream into different organs of the body. And here in this image on the right here, we can see many, many different parts of the body, many of the organs on which vitamin D has an effect. Now, of course, vitamin D is most well known for helping the body absorb and retain calcium and phosphorus, which is important for bone mineralization. But as you can see here on this image, many of the body's tissues and organs have receptors for vitamin D, which does suggest an important role in health beyond just the bone mineralization, bone health. Here's a study from 2019 that supports the idea that vitamin D's got an important role to play in health besides bone health. In this study, they say that vitamin D has a direct effect on the epigenome and the expression of more than a thousand genes in most human tissues and cell types. This is by Carlsberg from 2019. All right, now let's move on to a where question. Where do we get vitamin D from? Well, there are two sources. We can either get it from sunlight or through diet. The best sources of vitamin D3 are fatty fish, liver, eggs, fermented cheese, mushrooms, and of course, supplements of vitamin D2 and D3 and cod liver oil. Now, although we can get vitamin D3 from both sunlight and through diet, it's important to note that greater than 90% of vitamin D supply in our species is understood to be derived from exposure to ultraviolet B light, specifically from the sun. But there's a small issue with that. The fact is the farther you get from the equator, the less intense sunlight is, and therefore it is less capable of helping you create vitamin D3. And also during winter months, the angle of the sun in the sky is lower. So that means that the rays have to pass through more blocking atmosphere to reach your skin. But also the sun is above the horizon for fewer hours. Given those two facts together, basically during the winter time from months of November through February, 
At high latitudes, there is basically no vitamin D synthesis that occurs in the skin. Not surprisingly, this can lead to vitamin D deficiency. Before talking about deficiency, let's talk about what the optimal levels are. So optimal levels of 25-hydroxyvitamin D3 are between 30 and 80 nanograms per milliliter. You can get quite a bit above that before you feel any intoxication effects. You can get to quite as high as 150 nanograms per milliliter before intoxication can be uh, observed. Now, if you're below 30 nanograms per milliliter, you're considered insufficient. And if you go quite below 30, you will go all the way down to below 20 nanograms per milliliter. That's when you're defined as deficient, as vitamin D deficient. Now, given what I already said, you would expect that northern latitude areas would have higher levels of vitamin D deficiency. In fact, that's what we see. It is estimated that as high as 24% of the U.S. population is vitamin D deficient. That number rises up to 37% in Canada and 40% in Europe. This was a study by M. Ryan et al. from 2020. Now, vitamin D deficiency is no joke. It causes rickets in children, and it will precipitate and exacerbate osteopenia, osteoporosis, fractures in adults. Vitamin D deficiency is also associated with increased risk of common cancers, autoimmune disease, hypertension, and infectious disease. So it's important to make sure you're not vitamin D deficient. Now, the National Institute of Health recommends taking between 600 and 800 international units of vitamin D daily with a maximum tolerable amount of 4,000 international units per day. I personally take 10,000 international units every other day, which basically averages out to 5,000 IUs per day, which is slightly above the maximum tolerable amount recommended by NIH. However, I have had a calcitol test done in the wintertime when I was taking the same level of vitamin D as what I just described, and at that time, my Calcitol test result was 38 nanograms per milliliter, just inside the optimal level that I just described between 30 and 80 nanograms per milliliter, in fact, on the lower end. So it just goes to show that you should have your vitamin D tested to see whether following on the lower end around 600 to 800 IUs per day should be what you're uh, supplementing with or should you be supplementing on the higher end. Definitely in the wintertime, you should be supplementing on the higher end. Thanks again for watching or listening till the end of the podcast. If you have any follow-up questions or comments, please reach out and let me clear up any uncertainty. Either leave a comment or send an email to newsletter at jmartfit.com. That's all I have for you today, ladies and gents. Connect with me on social media at jmartfit on Instagram and Twitter and jmartmoves on Facebook. Or get my free bodyweight training program through subscribepage.com slash bodybasics. Jmart out.